Let us pray together. Father, we do thank you for your goodness and your kindness to us. Father, we thank you that you have shown your mercy and your love in sending your Son, the eternal Word, now made flesh, coming into human history, uh, entering into our humanity, living a life of perfect obedience before you, offering himself as a sacrifice without blemish on the cross in our place, as our substitute, taking the punishment we deserve, and on our behalf, waging war against sin and Satan and death, and conquering these great foes, triumphing over them in his resurrection on the third day. We thank you he has ascended to your right hand and now reigns over all things for our good. Oh, Father, we thank you for this gospel, this good news of salvation. May we entrust ourselves to the Lord Jesus Christ today and every day. Father, would you fill our hearts with his peace, a peace that passes understanding? Would you share his joy with us, a joy that is unspeakable? Father, we pray that we would be so filled with your love that it overflows our lives and spills into the lives of others. Father, help us to become humble servants, faithful servants in your kingdom. Father, may we learn to love you more and more with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. May we learn to love our neighbors more and more, even as we love ourselves. This we pray in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. The Spanish flu pandemic of 1918 infected about 500 million people worldwide. Uh, That was about a third of the global population At the time, the death toll uh, has been estimated in various ways. Some peg it as high as 100 million people. Certainly it was at least 50 million people. It's absolutely devastating. Public officials were powerless to stop it. Uh, Doctors had no remedy for it. Uh, In the U.S., more than 25% of the population got the disease. Almost 700,000 people died from it. Uh, one of the hardest hit cities was Philadelphia. Just to give you an example of what it was like, uh, at one point there were about 700 deaths per day when it was at its worst, just in the city of Philadelphia. Hospitals and healthcare workers were overworked and overwhelmed. Uh, there was a coffin shortage because uh, there were so many deaths, and the result of that is that many of the dead remained unburied for weeks. One historian summed it up this way. Nothing else in human history, be it war, famine, or some other kind of disease, has ever killed so many people in so brief a time. And yet, I've got to tell you, and maybe you're this way too, up until our most recent pandemic this year, I knew very little about the Spanish flu pandemic. It seems like it's just not something you really hear a whole lot about. You hear a lot about World War One and World War Two, but this Spanish flu pandemic, it, it seems to be overlooked ignored, forgotten. Why would such a devastating event, the most devastating event of the whole 20th century, be sidelined by historians and in the memory of people in this way? This is an event that killed more people than World War I and World War II combined. Why would it be forgotten? Well, historian Alan Brandt speculates this way. He says, implicit in our failure adequately to recognize the significance of epidemic disease in shaping history is a core psychological defense. Those forces beyond human control are most quickly repressed. They are an affront 
to our belief that we control our destiny and fundamentally shape our world. Why has this event been forgotten? Well, this historian says it's because it's really a psychological defense mechanism. We repress, we, we suppress the memory of those things that would remind us that we're not in control. This Spanish flu pandemic was an event beyond all human control. There was no pretending to be in control when it came to this pandemic. It was a painful reminder, painful proof that we do not control our destinies, that we do not shape the world however we wish. And that's a memory we want to suppress as much as possible. And that's why a thing like this can be forgotten. Really, you could say it's a reminder of what James teaches us here in James chapter 4. Yes, James says, we can make our plans, but God's plans will prevail. Life is not under our control. We are not masters of our fate. We don't like this truth because it leaves us feeling vulnerable. We want to be in control. All of us at heart are control freaks. We want to be in control. And we often have the illusion of being in control. Money can prop up that illusion. Technology can prop up that illusion. Good health can prop up that illusion. But that's all it is, an illusion. We are not in control. The reality is we are not in control. And you know, for some people, many of us perhaps, that causes tremendous anxiety to come to that realization that I am not in control. But James shows us that it's really good news. It's really a good thing to know that you're not in control. It's a good thing we're not in control. Uh, We have all kinds of anxiety that comes from not being in, in control when we think we should be in control. We have all kinds of discontentment that springs from not being in control when we think we should be in control. But what if we recognize it's a good thing that we're not in control? James here shows us it's a good thing. That we are not in control. And actually, if we can rest ourselves in this truth, if we can embrace this truth, it will actually drive away our anxieties and our discontentment. If we will embrace certain fundamental truths that James gives to us here. Now, it's important to understand what James is saying and what he is not saying. He's really illustrating the truth here. And so he talks about a businessman And this businessman has a business plan, and he's got uh, all this marked out on his calendar. He plans to set out on a trip today or tomorrow, he says. He's got a destination plan. He says, we'll go to this or to that city. Uh, He's got a plan to be there for a certain amount of time. He says, we'll be there for a year. He's got his activity planned while he's there. He says, we will buy and sell. And then he's got an outcome plan. He's got the results planned out. He says, we will turn a profit. Everything is planned from his initial departure to the final results. He's got all the details nailed down. This is just the kind of thing businessmen do, right? It's just the kind of thing merchants do. When businessmen go into some kind of venture, when they enter into a business venture, they plan it out. This is the kind of thing that uh, that investors like to see. Maybe you'll invest in a business if you're impressed with their business plan. You know, we could even say this is the kind of thing a wise person does, right? This is the kind of thing that a wise man would do, plan things out. Uh, we often associate wisdom with foresight, considering the future, and then planning ahead. 
And you know what? That is wisdom. There is a great deal of wisdom in planning ahead. In the book of Proverbs, it is the sluggard who refuses to plan. Proverbs 6 uh, speaks this way. Go to the ant, O sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. What does the wise person do like the ant? The wise person stores up, plans ahead, prepares for an uncertain future, looking ahead to all the different contingencies. That's wisdom. In Proverbs 31, the wise wife The wise woman prepares her family for the coming winter. In fact, it even says she laughs at what is to come. She's carefree about the future because she has planned ahead. That's lady wisdom. In uh, Proverbs chapter 21, verse 5, we read this. The plans of the diligent surely lead to abundance. But everyone who is hasty comes only to poverty. Those who don't think ahead end up in poverty. Those who do plan, who are diligent in their planning, will have abundance. Proverbs 24, 27 says, prepare your work outside, get everything ready for yourself in the field, and after that, build your house. Here, Proverbs is counseling a man how to plan for his family, how to build a household, prepare everything, get everything ready. Then you can, you can build up your household. Then you'll be able to build your household on that foundation. Foresight and preparation are critical. Planning is necessary. In fact, Proverbs is written to show us that there are regular patterns in God's world. God is a God of order. God is a God who has built the world in such a way that there's a, there's a moral cause and effect. Uh, and so we can, to a degree at least, understand the world and predict what's going to happen in the world. If we want to fulfill our responsibilities, we have to give thought to the future in this way. Every career requires planning ahead. You don't just roll out of bed one day and say, I want to be a banker or a lawyer or a doctor. You have to plan ahead for that. Providing for a family requires planning ahead. Building community. Doing things like scheduling parties and and get-togethers and celebrations. That requires planning ahead. Budgets require planning ahead. So James is not opposed to planning. If if James was opposed to any kind of planning, he'd be in conflict with the rest of Scripture. Planning is necessary. In fact, planning is one of the ways that we image God. Because God is a planner. And we bear God's image, so we make plans as well. God wants us to be good stewards of the resources he's entrusted us with. He wants us to be good stewards of his, of his gift of time to us. And if you're going to be a good steward of those resources and of your time, that's going to require planning. God knows we need money to live. And so he's not a plan to, he's not opposed to business and business planning. He's not even opposed to profit seeking. That, that's part of what the businessman is doing here. He's seeking a profit. There's nothing wrong with that. Making a profit is a good thing. It requires planning, but it's a good thing. Again, Proverbs 16.3 says, Commit your work to the Lord and your plans will be established. That affirms the goodness and necessity of planning. So we might say then, what is the issue? The issue here is not planning, so what is it? Well, verse 14. You do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? You are a mist or a vapor that appears for a short while and then vanishes. 
James says, your life is a mist, your life is a vapor. Now again, James does not say, your life is a vapor, so therefore don't bother planning. No, it's a certain kind of planning that he opposes. He goes on in verse 15, he says, make your plans, and then add, if the Lord wills. If the Lord wills, add that condition. Because that shows your planning in submission. See, what is James doing here? What is James telling us to do? Remember that your plans are the plans of a mere creature. You're not God. And God might have other plans. Plans that overrule your plans. Plans that supersede your plans. Plans that are better than your plans. Plans that are more difficult than your plans. God might have planned something different from you. And you have to keep that in mind. You cannot dictate tomorrow's events with your planning. Just because you put it in your Google calendar doesn't mean it's going to happen. (laughs) And there may be a lot of things that are not in your Google calendar that are going to happen. You are not sovereign. You are not autonomous. You are not in control. And so we best remember that when we make our plans. Verse 16 gets at the real problem here. James says, as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. There is a kind of planning that is really just boasting. It's boasting about tomorrow. There's a kind of planning that is evil because it's arrogant. Prideful planning is evil. And it's evil because it forgets this basic truth that God is sovereign. That we're not in control. God is in control. And his plans determine reality. His plans ultimately determine what will happen. His plan is sovereign over our plan. And so even the best and wisest human plans are merely vapor and may come to nothing. God rules and God overrules. God is always in control. God is always sovereign. And here James is reminding us of a truth that is taught again and again and again in Scripture. It's a truth, actually, that's also taught in Proverbs. Uh, Proverbs says, Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the plan of God that will stand. Proverbs says you can make all the plans you want, but it's God's plan that is going to come to pass. Again, Proverbs, The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. You can plan, but unless God establishes you in that, unless God has decreed for that to happen, unless God himself has planned for that to happen, it's not going to happen. Job confesses to God, I know you can do all things that no plan of yours can be thwarted. Jesus reminds us, not even a sparrow falls to the ground apart from the will of the Father. In Daniel chapter 4, we read these words, I bless the Most High and praise and honor him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. And his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will. We could say according to his plan among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? God's plans determine what comes to pass. Now again, James would not have us conclude from this that our planning is unnecessary or foolish. God's sovereignty doesn't cancel out our need to plan. God's sovereignty doesn't make your planning a waste. But it does put your planning into perspective. 
And that's really the key thing here. That's what James is doing. He's giving us a perspective. Wise planning is humble planning. The humble man will plan. He'll plan his steps. He'll plan his future. He'll take into account all the different contingencies that might arise that are foreseeable. He'll take into account that kind of moral cause and effect that you have in uh, in the book of Proverbs. He'll take all those kinds of things into account. He'll make a plan. But he'll make his plan in humility. Wise planning is humble planning. You know, as we've been working through James, I've told you several times that James really is wisdom literature. I've gone to the book of Proverbs many times to uh, help you understand what James is doing in his letter. It's really, you could think of James as a kind of new covenant Proverbs. You know, it's interesting. There's a key word there in verse 14. I already made reference to it, but I want to come back to it. There's a key word there in verse 14, which is one of the Bible's wisdom words. It's one of those words that shows up a lot in the wisdom literature. It's that word vapor, or it could also be translated mist. James says, what is your life? Your life is a mist. That pops up occasionally in Proverbs and in other places of the wisdom literature, but you know where that language of mist or vapor really comes from in the Bible's wisdom literature? It really comes from the book of Ecclesiastes. In fact, you could summarize the whole book of Ecclesiastes in that one sentence. Your life is a mist. Go read the book of Ecclesiastes. That's what it's about. Ecclesiastes, at the very beginning, Solomon says, mist, mist, all is mist. Or vapor, vapor, all is vapor. Some English translations obscure that, but that's what he's saying. It's a word that describes a vapor or a mist. And so there's an interesting contrast that can be drawn between Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. And I think it's in play here in what James teaches us. If Proverbs tends to focus on the order and regularity God has built into the creation, this kind of moral cause and effect, the predictability of things in God's world, Ecclesiastes reminds us that nevertheless, life is full of incomprehensible mysteries. Life is is too deep and, and has complexities that are too deep for us to grasp. Life is messy. Proverbs shows us how life can be ordered, but Ecclesiastes reminds us life is messy. Proverbs is all about the value of wisdom, how wisdom is foresight and wisdom is life. But Ecclesiastes reminds us that both the wise man and the fool will die. Even the wise cannot see all ends. Even the wise man comes to death. Just as the fool, the wise man and the fool alike both die. Proverbs teaches us those who do good will prosper while the wicked will suffer. Do good and you'll prosper. Do evil and you will suffer. But Ecclesiastes reminds us sometimes the righteous suffer and sometimes the wicked prosper. Life can get complicated in that way. It can get messy. Proverbs emphasizes the need to plan. I've shown you that already. Ecclesiastes reminds us that all our plans, like our lives, are vapor and mist. We're just making plans in the mist. And our plans themselves are mist. And so trying to control your life, trying to map out your life, trying to plan your life from beginning to end is like trying to shepherd the wind. It just can't be done. Proverbs seems to say life makes sense. It makes a lot of sense. There's an order and a logic to things. Ecclesiastes reminds us the ways of God are past finding out. His will and his ways are inscrutable. Life is a riddle wrapped in an enigma. 
Now, that's not to say that Proverbs and Ecclesiastes contradict each other. They don't. They're actually complementary. And to be truly wise, you have to take into account both perspectives. And actually, if you dig into the details of this book, you find that they actually overlap a lot when you get down into the details. Proverbs also teaches the vaporous nature of life. And Ecclesiastes uh, teaches us that there is a final judgment. A final judgment when all the messiness of life, all the messiness that we see in history will finally be sorted out. Proverbs acknowledges there's no one-to-one correspondence between obedience and prosperity. And Ecclesiastes stresses that God's justice, God's law and order will ultimately prevail. So the books really are compatible. They, They really are consistent with one another. But still they give us two different perspectives on life. They give us two different emphases. They are different lenses through which we can view life and the world around us. And while James, up to this point in his letter, has been incorporating themes from Proverbs into a great deal of what he says, now he begins to shift, really, as it were, to focus on the themes from Ecclesiastes. And here he picks up on the vapor theme from Ecclesiastes to remind us that our plans do not imply control. We can and should plan, but we have to hold our plans loosely. We have to be flexible about our plans. We have to submit our plans to God. We have to submit our plans to God's plan, to God's providence. God's ways are mysterious. His ways are above our ways. Our lives are always in his hands and under his control. You know, there's an old saying, if you want to hear God laugh, tell him your plans. And and that's true. And James... Echoing Ecclesiastes is reminding us of that. He's making that very point. If you want to hear God laugh, tell him your plans. We are not entitled to get our own way in life. You are not entitled. A lot of Americans think this. A lot of American Christians think this. But you are not entitled to an easy, comfortable life. You are not entitled to a carefree life where everything unfolds according to plan. God is going to interrupt your plans again and again and again. And if you're not ready for that, if you haven't prepared for that as well, if you think of your plans as this is what's going to happen, you're going to be in big trouble because your plans are going to continually get frustrated when they bump up against God's plan. You've never got a right to the results you think you should have in life. Maybe you'll turn a profit. Maybe it'll be a disaster. We can never escape the vulnerabilities that come with being creatures, indeed with being sinners. Again, we are not in control. We're small. We're tiny. Just tiny, tiny little specks. Actually, on a little blue-green ball hurling through space in a vast, vast cosmos. We're small beings on a small planet. You know, they say Teddy Roosevelt used to go outside at night when he was president and have his secret service with him, and he would just gaze up at the stars while he was president. And gaze up at the stars for a little while, and he would say, you know, I feel small enough now. We can go to bed. And that's how he would end his day. And there's something about that that's deeply right. We would like to think we can steer our lives however we wish. We'd like to think we can plan our lives out. We'd like to think we have control. But it's just folly. It's foolish. It's arrogant. James says it's evil to think that way. To think you can control your life is like a little child thinking he can jump up and touch the stars. No, it's just, it's beyond your reach. It's beyond you. 
You're just chasing vapor that can't be caught. You're trying to shepherd the wind. You can't control your life. You can't see the future. You can't control the future. You don't know what tomorrow will bring. Your life belongs to a sovereign God. Your life is ruled by a sovereign God. There is a sovereign God who has a plan for you. He's planned out your life every day of your life. And maybe sometimes his plans coincide with yours or yours happen to coincide with him. But it's his plan that will come to pass. But you know, there's something else from Ecclesiastes uh, that James picks up on here. In Ecclesiastes, the ultimate proof that life is vapor is death. The ultimate proof that life is vaporous, that life is, is but a mist, is found in the reality of death. It is death that makes everything vaporous. Because it's the inescapable end we all come to. The death rate remains 100%. Everyone who lives dies. And your wealth and your technology and your wisdom cannot change that. Death is going to get you in the end. And so again, Ecclesiastes points out the fool and the wise man might be buried right next to each other in the same cemetery. The wise man and the fool come to the same end. The wise man may do a great job managing his life in this world. He may amass a great fortune. But even then, he can't control what happens to the fruit of his labor after he dies. Some fool might inherit it. And all his work, that uh, the, the, everything he's worked so hard to build, it's all going to be squandered. Ecclesiastes reminds us of this. It's all fleeting. Life itself is fleeting. We are here today. Gone tomorrow. Life is short and life is uncertain. Again, James puts it this way. says in verse 14, You don't know what tomorrow will bring. You are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Think about a cold winter's morning. You know, we have some of those from time to time in Alabama where you step outside and you can see your breath. You can see your breath for just a moment. You can see the vapor. And then it's gone. And James says, that's how your life is. It's there for a moment and then it vanishes. What does it mean? It means fame. It means looks. It means athletic ability. It means wealth. It means mental ability. All of it. It's all vaporous and fleeting. Life itself is vaporous and fleeting. Life cannot be controlled. Life cannot be preserved or prolonged. It slips away from our grasp. It slips through our fingers. You know, we've all had this experience, and it happens more and more the older we get, this experience of thinking, where did the time go? You know, it's like when we're young, time goes too slow. It takes forever for Christmas to get there. And when you get older, it's like, oh my goodness, it's Christmas time again already. It seems like we just had Christmas. Where did the time go? You know, we think just yesterday I had my whole life ahead of me and I had all kinds of possibilities out there. Who I would marry, where I would go to college, what job I would pursue, how many children I would have. And you blink your eyes and next thing you know, you've got a spouse and you've got a mortgage and you don't even just have kids, but your kids are grown and it all passes you by. Life flies by. It's like a vapor or a mist. It's there for a moment and then it vanishes. Psalm 39.5, the psalmist says, our days are just a hand breath. Just a little hand breath. He says, even man at his best 
is but a vapor. Life is kind of like a a basketball game where the shot clock is winding down. And so you best take advantage of the moments you have to run your play. Because life is brief. The time you have is a gift, and so use it well. But in the midst of all of that, remember, you are not the author of your own story. You are living in a story authored by God. You're a character in God's story. Let's start to kind of piece this together, how this works out in our lives, by asking a few questions. Think about it this way. You know how when you were little and people would ask you, uh, what do you want to be when you grow up? Kids, you've had people ask you that question. People probably ask you that question from time to time. What do you want to be when you grow up? And you might say an astronaut or a fireman or something like that. I would guess for those of us who are older, those of us who are adults now, those of us who are grown up, I would guess very, very few of us are doing what we thought we would be doing when we were asked that question as children. I know I'm not doing what I thought I was going to be doing. Or think about, you know, those of you who are married and have had kids, and maybe your kids now are are, are getting up in years, how many of us had grand plans for all the things we would do when we had kids, you know, all the things we would do in our family life, the places we would do, and all the places we would go, and all the things we would do with our kids. You know, before you have kids, you have have this list uh, of all the things you're going to do. And next thing you know, you blink an eye, and they're grown, and so much of that list never got done. And you think, where did the time go? Time doesn't stand still, and it only flows in one direction. You can't slow down the moments any more than you can bottle up the vapor. And so we best make the most of each moment. It's, this is kind of a, what James is giving to us here is kind of a Christian version of carpe diem. Seize the day, seize the moment. Plan your work and work your plan, but do so under the sovereignty of God. It's always if the Lord wills. Don't just say, I'm going to do X, Y, and Z. Say, I'm going to do X, Y, and Z if the Lord wills it. If the Lord wills that we live and do X, Y, and Z, we will do those things. But if not, if the Lord chooses to snatch our breath away, or if the Lord has planned A, B, and C instead of X, Y, and Z for us, Otherwise, you're like the people who built the Titanic. They said they had built this unsinkable ship that not even God could sink it. And next thing you know, it can't even make one trip across the Atlantic. Next thing you know, it's at the bottom of the ocean. And that's what's going to happen to your plans. Your plans are going to crash into an iceberg if you don't have this in mind, if the Lord wills. You see this with the people who built the Titanic. All their boasting was evil and foolish. Or it's like the story uh, about uh, the, the coronation of Edward. Queen Victoria had died, and the date was set for the coronation of her eldest son, Edward. It was set for April 1902. And the announcements were sent out uh, to all these famous and powerful people all throughout the world. But what's interesting is when they sent out those announcements, they did not include two letters that prior to this, my understanding is, had always been put on this kind of official correspondence, two little letters, D-V, at the bottom of the announcement. D-V meaning Deo Valente, Latin for God willing. They didn't include those letters this time when they sent out the invitation. Plans were made, all the arrangements were completed for one of the greatest and grandest celebrations England had ever witnessed. Kings and emperors from all over the earth had received invitations to attend the royal ceremony. The prince's proclamations were printed and displayed. But those letters DV were not on a single one of them. 
Edward was to be crowned at Westminster Abbey at a certain hour on a fixed day, according to those invitations. But God had other plans. And man's plans were frustrated. These were the plans of the most powerful people in the world, and yet God frustrated them by striking down Prince Edward with a case of appendicitis. And the celebration had to be postponed for a number of months. And my understanding of the story is that when the invitations were resent, they did include those two little letters, D-V, Deo Valente. See, recognizing God's sovereignty means we have to hold our plans in abeyance to God's will. We have to hold our plans in submission to God's will. We realize that the divine potter has absolute power over the clay to mold it as he will in accord with his own pleasure and his own designs. Our lives are always in the Lord's hands. We must bow before his sovereign will. It is for him to say where we shall live. Will it be in America or in Albania? It is for him to determine under what circumstances we live. Will it be in wealth or in poverty, in health or in sickness? It is for him to determine how long we live. Whether we should be cut down in our youth like a flower or whether we will get our three score and ten years. It's all for him to decide. And, and I will tell you, this is a lesson we don't just learn and go on. It is a lesson we must learn again and again and again. Yes, God's plan includes our planning. And sometimes his plans coincide with ours. But his plans often include the confounding of our plans. And all of this, this is what James wants us to see. All of this, all of these truths are designed to humble us, to put us in our place, to to help us to remember the world is too complex for us to handle. Life always gives us more than we can handle on our own. It's never really in our control. So we must always be bowing before the will of the Almighty. If those things are true, how should we then live? We have to conform our lives to these realities, recognizing God's plan always overrules our own, recognizing we are not autonomous, recognizing God is the sovereign ruler of heaven and earth. We are but characters in his story, and he moves us around as he wills, and he gives us what he wants us to have. And recognizing God's sovereignty in this way can take away your anxiety about life and about the future. And it can bring you a wonderful kind of contentment knowing that God's purpose for you, however much difficulty God's plan for you may include, and there's always going to be some, however much difficulty God's plan, God's story for you includes, His purpose towards you is always good. It always serves His loving purpose. Yes, we make our choices. We are responsible for ourselves. Uh, We're responsible for our decisions. But we are not self-existent, self-determining beings. We are always utterly dependent upon the creator and sustainer and providential ruler of all things. Always utterly dependent upon God. Only God can shepherd the wind. Only God can direct the vapor that is our lives. Now, some people hear all of this and it does make them passive. They just resign themselves to a kind of, you know, whatever my fate is, que sera, sera. They just, they, they, they become passive and fatalistic. But it's very interesting. Look at James' conclusion in verse 17. 
It's a conclusion that at first doesn't seem to follow, but again, there's something riddle-like about this conclusion, but when you start to, to work it out, you see why he says what he says. Verse 17, whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it for him, it is sin. What is James saying here and how does this fit with everything he's said up to this point? Well, I think this is what he's saying. Okay, so your plans are not sovereign. Uh, God's plan is sovereign over your life. Okay, that means you cannot govern your life by guesses about God's secret plan. Those hidden things belong to God, not to us. We can't know the future. We can't know the story God has already written. We can't know what God has decreed and planned. It's not just that our lives are vaporous. The whole world is vaporous before us. It's like we are shrouded by a thick fog and we can't see six inches in front of us. And so what are we going to do? How are you going to live your life when you can't see what's out in front of you? You can't see into the future. Well, it's as if James is saying here, no, you don't know what God has planned. You don't know God's decree for the future. You can't know that. His will for what is to come in our lives is a secret. Nobody knows if you're even going to get up in the morning much less go somewhere to do business and turn a profit. Nobody knows who's going to win the presidential election. Nobody knows what's going to happen in the stock market. Nobody knows what's going to happen in our lives. We simply can't know that. But you know what you can know? Those things are secret. That's the secret will of God. You can know the revealed will of God. Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the revealed things belong to us. And to our children. What has God revealed to us? What has he given us to do? It's what's in this book right here. You don't know the future. But you do know what to do. What are you to do? Keep the commandments. Do your duty each day. Fulfill the responsibilities God has clearly assigned to you. Take all of these truths that we've just been looking at. These truths about God and uh, about how he wants us to live. Take all these truths and then put them into practice. Live in accordance with these truths. You don't have to know the future to obey God. But you know what you do have to do? You don't know the future, but you do know God's will and you need to submit to it. You need to submit to God's will. In fact, what, what I think is really interesting here is the way James ends this section is a lot like the way James, I'm sorry, Solomon ends the book of Ecclesiastes. When you come to, the, to Ecclesiastes chapter 12, this is what Solomon says. He says, this is the sum of the matter. Reverence God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man, for God will bring every deed into judgment, whether good or evil. Solomon's been saying for 12 chapters, life is vapor. You can't control your life or extend your life. So what are you to do? You've got no control over the future. You can't see into the future. So what are you to do? What is life about? Life is not about control. Life is about obedience. It's not about making guesses about God's secret plan. It's about doing what God has revealed. What are you to do with your life? Your vaporous little life? Give your life to God. Live for Him according to His Word. Do what God has shown you to do. Do what God has told you to do all the days of your vaporous little life. That's what Solomon tells you, and that's what James tells you. 
James, echoing Solomon, says, do what you know to do. You don't know the future. You do know the commandments. Your life is a fleeting mist. You can't control your life. You can't be sure your plans will come to fruition. But what you can do is obey. You can't control the future. You can choose to obey. You are in control of that, we could say. You can't control your circumstances. You can control whether or not you are faithful in the midst of those circumstances. And so I'll put it this way. In the midst of the mist, obey. As that vapor swirls around you, blocking your vision of the future. As you realize your life is a vapor and that vapor swirls around you, obey. And remember here too, James has shown us the only way you can obey God is to trust God. This kind of obedience can only arise from faith. And so now what James is talking about is clear. There's really two ways to live. This is what we've seen throughout the letter. We see it here. Two ways to live. Faith or fear. Which will you choose? Will fear of an unknown future paralyze you and make a coward of you and make a fatalist out of you? Or will you trust God? And if you entrust yourself to Him, you don't have to worry. You don't have to worry about the future. You don't have to worry about the presidential election. You don't have to worry about the economy. You don't have to worry about what your next doctor's visit is going to tell you. James is saying, choose trust over terror. Choose faith over fright. Maybe God has given us this crazy year 2020 to remind us that we were never actually in control. Maybe more than anything else, as you look at all the the chaos of 2020, maybe this is what God is teaching us. We thought we were in control and then 2020 happened and reminded us, no, we don't control our lives. We don't control our health. We don't control the economy. We don't control anything, really. And you know, sadly, some people, because of the chaos of 2020, have been driven to the depths of despair because they have had their illusion of control shattered. They thought they were in control. They thought their plans were going to come to pass. And God said, no, I have other plans. What happens when we see our lives in light of the sovereignty of God? We can be honest about our smallness and our weakness and our vulnerability We can be honest about the vaporous nature of life because we have entrusted ourselves to this sovereign, transcendent creator who made us, who sustains us, who gives us breath each day, each moment, who has determined the times and seasons of our lives, who through his son forgives us all our sins, who through the resurrection of of his son gives us new life, who promises to bring us to glory in the end. And who uses even the tragedies of life to promote our growth in holiness. This is wisdom. This is life. There is no other way but to trust and obey. Make your plans, but make your plans in submission. Submit to God's word. Submit to God's law. Submit to God's providence. Submit to God by trusting in him and living according to his word. And let this take away all your fears about the future, all your anxieties, all your concerns that your plans might not happen. Lay hold of the son of God by faith because you know what? Everything is vapor. You're a vapor. Your plans are vapor. The world is vapor. But Jesus is not a vapor. 
He is solid. He is rock solid. And he is the one who can shepherd the wind. And he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so he can give you a solid place to stand. He can give you something firm to grab hold of. He is your rock. And he is your fortress. And your life is hidden in him. And so you know you are secure now and for all eternity. With Jesus, now you don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. You don't know where you'll be tomorrow even with Jesus in your life, but you do know where you're going to be one million years from now. You're going to be with him and the Father and the Spirit in glory. And that's our hope. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.